The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. So we're gonna we're gonna do adultery. Um, not do adultery. We're not gonna do adultery. We're gonna talk about adultery. Um, so it's relevant to this week's parsha. This week's Torah portion actually has a fascinating. Um, one of the only times we find in the Torah, it's Parshat Naso in Numbers. It's one of the few times we find in the Torah the concept um, of something supernatural, which usually as Jews, we believe in the supernatural, but we don't practice um, any of that stuff, and it's not part of the religion, although we believe, of course, in the concept. Um, but it's, as far as the Torah using um, supernatural means, that's usually that's a no-no in Judaism. This is the one exception that you find in the Torah, which is um, the, the specific case. As we know, adultery is prohibited as one of the Ten Commandments. It's a capital crime for the male and female. It's equal in that sense that the woman and the man are both, it's capital for both of them, uh, meaning the married woman and her lover are both put to death. Um, of course, there needs to be two witnesses and warning, and there's a long, um, you need a lot in order to to uh, bring it to, the, to, cap, to bring the capital punishment to fruition, just as in any capital punishment in the Torah, but um, that's just as far as the severity of the crime. When it comes to what this week's parasha talks about is, let's say you just, you don't have witnesses. There's just an accusation. The husband mm-hmm. is, suspects his wife of hanky-panky, but there's actually no, um, there's no witnesses, there's nothing really happened. Even, even, by the way, in real adultery, if there's an actual case with witnesses, Talmud says it doesn't have to be as the Talmud puts it in my own language. Talmud says it doesn't, the witnesses don't have to witness a, the act itself as a key in the keyhole, says the Talmud, but they just have to see, there has to be witnesses that see them in a lover's embrace. Um, that's sufficient. Um, but for example, just the fact that they're checking into Motel 6 together doesn't, uh, or, the, or the Hilton, doesn't in itself, um, that's not, doesn't necessarily, that's not a witness to an act of adultery. Maybe he was doing her taxes, or whatever the case is, might have been her account. Right, so so um, adultery has to be literally that the witnesses see them in a lover's embrace. Mm. So what happens in a case where the husband, so the Torah discusses cases where the husband just accuses the wife, um, and the cases he had to have actually warned her, do not seclude yourself with this particular guy. Meaning, he's suspicious of this particular guy and his wife, and he warns her, you know, do not seclude yourself with this guy in, in, in Motel 6. And then they end up being secluded. So he has strong suspicions, but there's no witnesses. So usually, so what's fascinating about this is the Torah tries to save the marriage. Because um, normally, anytime, when usually when a husband or any spouse, the wife or the husband is suspicious of the other spouse, that usually is not conducive to a healthy marriage. There's really no way to know the truth. So that's why in this particular case, the Torah says, if there's a Torah, the husband warned the wife, um, and she secluded herself again in, um, with this particular gentleman that he warned her about, so, the, so then there's a process that the, the Torah prescribes, some type of uh, heebie-jeebie test, where she, he, she comes to the temple, and she drinks this certain water with uh, the name of God that's scraped into the water. It's really ink, some earth from the temple is put into this water. And that test will prove her innocence or prove her guilty. Okay, and the point, again, the goal is, again, it's some crazy thing. But the goal is because once that test proves her innocence, then they can be happily married. As a matter of fact, it says if she's innocent, 
she will then be blessed if she didn't have children before now she'll have children the Torah says if she didn't um, if she didn't have healthy children now she'll have healthy children she um, whatever it is she'll be in a better situation than previously how do you say that please? Thank you. Um, Thank you. Mm-hmm. so this wild wild test again is for the sake the only time the Torah uses supernatural means is for the sake of saving the marriage of this of this um, of this particular couple. Um, so we're not going to get into the details of the test. It's fascinating. I think we discussed it a few years back, but we, we're going to discuss. There's the question is, and the question I'm going to address is, um, it's, you'll see, it's practical, not for everyone, but again, if you do work for an intelligence agency, there's a concept called the honey trap, um, which Brian, it's good you weren't there. She was nice. It's good you went to sleep early. I did give this class in Maryland and she was 4.30. No, but you didn't hear it. You weren't there. You left early. You're right. 4.30? I gave this class at 4.30. Oh, okay. You're right. Hey, you were long. Uh, you were snoring away. Um, were you up, Ruben? All night? Yeah, Not with you, though. All right. So, uh, in any case, so, so at 4.30 in the morning, you need to have something that will wake the crowd up. So, adultery is always a good time to, to keep the crowd up. Oh. So, so uh, what's known in the intelligence language is something called a honey trap, which is um, the intelligence agency sends a attractive woman to get the guy to the position they want him in, in order to whatever to do whatever they want to do to him. Okay, so that's known as a honey trap. So the question is, um, as we'll see, there are many cases um, where you have Mossad. In many cases, even sending out agents, married women, who technically they're committing adultery. The question is. They're doing it to save the country. So, uh-huh. so that's really our question is, okay. is adultery permitted to save the country? Um, Just because words are important, Rabbi. Yes. They aren't technically committing adultery. They are committing adultery. Yeah. Uh, yes. The question then is, is uh, it? Well, well no, because they might be with permission of their husbands. Well, what's, how, do we, how do we define adultery? Hey, I mean, if the husband's saying, <laughs> take his job, this is your job, is going to be... Uh, well, now that you're changing, yeah. but now it goes you're changing to the circumstances. Doesn't it go Do- to intent? Adultery yeah. is normally thought of as having Married, sexual relations yes, outside the marriage, outside yes. the marriage 100%, with or yes. without permission. Yes, so okay, so I'm just I got objecting it. to the word technically. Oh, with or without permission? I think so, by definition. I guess we'll find out, though. Right, so, so that's a good, a good point. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's clearly a viol. Well, well, yeah. that would be a better question. Is it a violation of marriage? The husband gave permission, but but oh, you're right. One hundred percent, halakhically, we can get that out of the way. Yes, you're hundred percent right. Thank you. Um, if it's considered adultery, there's no question. The question is, is it permitted um, in the situation? Right, that's the issue. Um, and is obviously the question is, is it capital punishment or is it? Uh, there's another issue which we'll talk about, which is that. According to Jewish law, and we see that from here, um, one, once a woman commits adultery, um, she no longer can stay married to her husband. Again, assuming, even in this case, by the way, she just accused, they have to separate until her innocence is proven, like in this case here, but surely if there's two witnesses, so she is now prohibited to her husband, they cannot no longer, even if they go to therapy for the next six years and they're going to live happily ever after, the Torah does not allow them to stay in their marriage. Torah says they have to get divorced. That's number one. It's a, it's a negative prohibition to live together after um, adultery is proven. And number two, or even before in this case, just the accusation until her innocence is proven. 
and she also could not marry her lover. Um, so it's a double whammy. Yeah. Or a woman gets stuck. I mean, I'm assuming this is a preventive measure that uh, you get stuck. You can't marry your, your you can't stay married to your husband, and you can't marry your lover. Okay. And is the same applicable to the man who commits adultery? So it's a good question. So it's a touchy topic. Another class. <laughs> not a class, but no. The, so the, the, I said before, and I was a little misleading because I'm trying to be PC, that adultery is is equal in the sense of male and female. It's capital crime for both of them. But a key difference, which I must disclose, is that the definition of adultery in, of adultery in the Torah is a married woman having relations outside of marriage. Meaning, again, the lovers, if the lovers having relations. Whether he's married or single, he's going to be, he's, it's a capital crime for him too, with a married woman. But let's say the, the man, the male, is having, is married and he's having relations with a single woman mm -hmm. outside of his marriage. That is not defined, as, that's still prohibited, according to the Torah, but it's not defined as adultery. Adultery specifically with a married woman involved. Um, so, so meaning a married man, since according to the Torah law, polygamy is permitted, um, but a woman cannot have multiple spouses. Therefore, that's not defined as adultery. It's just taking another uh, other partner. So that's where there's you can claim in a certain sense it's not so equal in the treatment of that. But but I think it's like that in, in many societies, polygamy, where even where polygamy is permitted, it's still for the woman, it's prohibited for her to have multiple spouses, which is not uh, so. That's, so the same thing in the Torah, technically, of course, in Judaism today, polygamy is prohibited. But that came at a much later point in history. Biblically speaking, polygamy is Permitted. As a matter of fact, even when the state of Israel was founded, the law until 19, I think it was 52 or 54, polygamy was wasn't prohibited, and the, there were many uh, Yemenite Jews who had multiple wives, because it was only at the later point in history when polygamy became prohibited. It was only for Ashkenazim. The Sephardim never had the prohibition, um, so people like the Yem Yemenite Jews had multiple spouses, and when they came, they immigrated to Israel. Um, before 1952, in Operation Magic Carpet, where they took out all the Yemenite, well, not all, but most of the Yemenite Jews, so many of them came to Israel with multiple uh, wives. So they were grandfathered in, even after the law was passed, they still allowed them, yeah. they were grandfathered in to the, they were already married. But after 1954 or 52, I don't remember, it is currently prohibited in the state of Israel. Polygamy is prohibited, so, in case you're thinking of it. Um, so going back to our case, so, so again, so adultery, I forgot where it was, um, but the, the question, oh, so, this, so that's another aspect. So let's say we're saying in this honeypot scenario, so there's multiple, there's a few questions. One is, is it capital punishment if you're working for the Mossad or CIA um, and you're married? Number two is, uh, is, are you then permitted back to go back to your spouse? We're saying technically if someone commits adultery, they're now prohibited from staying married to their spouse, according to the Torah. So what happens in a case like that, where you did it to save the country, can you, can you go back to the spouse? So, um, so the history um, in general, and coming up in a few weeks past, we know, we discussed it there, I believe, about spies in general, um, working for a spy agency. Um, is that a nice job for, for a Jewish boy um, or girl? The, the history is, of course, in a few weeks, we have the case of the spies, Parshat Shlach, where Moses uh, were actually uh, didn't send the spies. They went on their own. Of course, that's a famous story. God was not happy with the spies there in that situation. That's one historical um, case where you had disastrous results of spies. 
But of course, there are other cases in Tanakh, where, such as Joshua sending um, spies, which were successful. Um, so that's ancient history. In recent history, probably one of the most famous stories is, is the famous Mossad agent known as Eli Kohn, who uh, in the 60s he moved to Syria. Um, basically, which is, which is really a whole other question of, in general, can you, if you're a spy, obviously, once you're living in Syria in that case, he became supposedly third in command to, this, to literally to, to Bashar al-Assad, he was a Mossad agent, until they discovered him in, the, in 19, I don't remember what year, 60-something. Um, in actually 1967, um, the war the, the, the at that time, Israel literally on the first day of the war bombed every Syrian bunker in the Golan Heights, was immediately bombed by the Air Force, destroyed. And hundreds of Syrian troops were killed, they say it was based on his um, spying Eli Cohen, where he convinced the Syrian government to plant eucalyptus trees around all their bunkers. So this way the Israelis knew that, obviously. And that was a way of, so they were able to bomb every Syrian bunker in the Golan Heights on the first day of the war. Um, so he was a famous spy. He, he uh, again, like he got supposedly, literally third command in the hierarchy of the government at the time. Um, when they finally realized that something was going on, they fought him. They he they hung him. Um, it's a public execution. His body told his day. His wife is still alive. His body was never brought back. Israel still uh, supposedly claiming that they're still always negotiating to get back his body. Um, in any case, so that, 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 that was one case. He was also, I believe, a religious Jew prior for it to him becoming a spy. So the question is, obviously, when he's living in Syria, he clearly wasn't keeping kosher, uh, being shown Shabbat. Uh, so is that allowed also? Uh, so, so that's one case. The other case was, uh, more relevant to what we're talking about, is the famous case of Mordechai Vanunu. He was a Moroccan Jew. Um, emigrated to Israel in, I don't know what year maybe it says here 19, uh, he was born in 1954 came as a young child to Israel um, as, as many Moroccan Jews did he worked he was working in the nuclear facilities Israel's nuclear facilities um, quote unquote quote research facilities of course as we know they do have nuclear capabilities and he was um, leftist anti-war um, I don't know how he got the job there if they knew that in any case, he, at one point in the 80s, he took 60 pictures of the facility of uh, Israel. To this day, as we know, has not admitted that they do have nuclear capabilities, although it's widely known. So he left Israel for Australia, um, had some connection with the Anglican Church at the time, and then ended up in London, and he sold his 60 pictures that he had taken, left and smuggled out of the country, to the London Times. Um, Subsequently, the, the Mossad sent a woman codenamed Lucindy. She was actually American-Israeli from Miami. She's still, uh, sorry, from Orlando. I don't know where she's from originally, but she currently, she's, she was married. Her name was Cheryl Bento. She currently lives in Orlando. Um, she sells timeshares. So if you ever get a call <laughs> from a woman named Cheryl or Cindy oh, one, from yeah. Orlando, do not buy a timeshare. I would be careful about what you buy from her. Um, but she, she uh, so they sent her to London um, to befriend um, Mr. Vanunu. She was actually very successful. Initially, he was holed up in a hotel, then he started going to certain social events. So they, she befriended him, they started a romantic relationship. Um, she, at some point, convinced him to come to Rome, where she claimed her sister had an apartment in Rome. Um, and uh, at the time, he was declared missing uh, um, for many weeks. 
um, and then he showed up miraculously in Israel, put on trial. He's still in jail in Israel currently. Um, so, so sh- clearly there was a sexual component to this. Um, again, Cindy uh, Cheryl Bentov was married um, at the time. She still is happily married, as far as I know. Um, the question is again. So this, so, so, uh, so, is this something that will be permitted halachically um, for her to, like we're saying, uh, not the word technically, but she, she clearly had a sexual relationship with Vanunu um, while she was married. And again, the question is halachically, how does that work? Um, was, is that can we call that adultery halachically, where? She, it would be prohibited, capital punishment, is she permitted back to her husband? So that's all the question about. Um, so, the, the, the real issue, as we know, and we've mentioned this here many times in the past, which is that the pikuach nefesh, the concept of saving a life in, in Judaism, overrides every mitzvah in the Torah, um, 610 of them at least, so that means, meaning if any mitzvah, in any which way, any commandment of the Torah, whether it be positive or negative, somehow endangers your life by observance of that mitzvah. So the law, the Torah says, the verse, you see it quoted here in number three on the sheet, on the right side, says, you shall observe my statutes and my ordinances, which a man shall do and live by them. I am the Lord. So of course the simplest translation is you're supposed to live by the Torah. But the Talmud understands that and interprets that verse you shall live by them that if that the commandments are only given if they're not going to endanger your life if in any which way a commandment endangers your life an example I always like to use is if your doctor tells you on Yom Kippur to eat a double bacon and cheese that you have to eat that um, you have to drive to get it on Yom Kippur then you're, now it becomes a mitzvah based on this verse it's a mitzvah and this, I, I forgot to put the source of the verse it's in um, Parashat Bahar which is coming up soon also um so the, it's explicit this verse is telling you that now becomes a mitzvah this is one of the 613 commandments which is you shall live by the commandments living them means that it cannot endanger your life so therefore if there's any question you violate Shabbat to save your life there's no question as a matter of fact the, the Shulchan Aruch the Code of Jewish Law says if one goes ahead on Shabbat to, to ask the question to their rabbi unless you know, their kid uh, falls down the flight of steps needs stitches they say well let's go ask the rabbi should we go to the hospital or not so it says that person's a murderer you don't ask questions when it comes to saving life even there's a 1% chance of danger because normally in Jewish law we go with majority we go we look at numbers and it says when it comes to saving a life numbers are irrelevant um, we don't look at numbers if there's a 1% chance you can save someone's life you violate Shabbat violate kosher whatever law it may be the most stringent laws you need to violate to save someone's life it says let's say one of the examples given is um, it says let's say uh, someone's passing out they need an apple okay so it says even if there are 30 people running to take the apple off the tree, which is prohibited on Shabbat, so they're all allowed to go. Even though we know only one of them, he only needs one apple. Okay, but 30 people, since we don't know who's going to get there first, all 30 people are allowed to run and violate Shabbat. Okay, the same thing applies to across the board for all mitzvot. Can't see it. Um, yeah, sorry. See it. Unless you don't want to be seen. Um, so, so, uh, so, so that's a, it's a very clear, again, clear verse in Deuteronomy. says very clearly, you shall live by the ordinances. There's no question about it. That's an obligation. A mitzvah like any other mitzvah. Um, so, so without question. So saving a life is not an issue. Um, so let's say, like we said, the first case, Eli, Eli Kohn, 
um, who lived in Syria, he wouldn't put on tefillah, he's not keeping Shabbat, he's not keeping kosher, obviously as a spy. So there's no question. Technically, I don't see why the, that it wouldn't be permitted. Um, as the Torah says very clearly, shall live by the mitzvah. So he's doing something which is saving lives. Right? Being in Syria, clearly he saved lives. As we said, just in that one incident we're aware of, in the eucalyptus trees, he saved probably thousands of lives, thousands of Israeli lives. So there's no question to be allowed to do that. There is, the only question I might have would be the fact that you, you know, it's, meaning is the Torah's permission for a one-time thing, or is it this guy's indefinitely going to be living, you know, not, not being observant? He's violating the Torah daily, so that's, maybe you can make the argument, maybe the Torah's permission is a one-time thing, but I haven't seen, I, I'm not aware of any reason to, to say that, why there'd be a difference. Listen, if it takes, you know, if he's living like that for 20 years, if that's what he has to do in order to save lives, so that's what he has to do. Um, so that, that, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't be permitted. But the question is, the problem becomes, there are three exceptions to this rule of the Chaybahim. There are three exceptions um, to that rule. I mean, there are 613 commandments, as we know. And this permission of you shall live by the statutes is for 610 of them. There's three of them that we, don't, we obligate you to even give sacrifice your life. Even though, as we, I would like to say, Judaism is not a, not a religion where we ask you to sacrifice your life for, based on this. We don't ask you to blow yourself up or, you know, um, do things like that. But there are three, the three exceptions are murder, idolatry, and I put that in morality. It's really adul- adultery, other various sexual uh, prohibitions that are capital punishment, as we'll see. So that means the, the classical case is if someone puts a gun to your head, says kill this person or I'm, or I'm going to kill you so even though normally if they say kill this person or eat this or, sorry they say eat this bacon and cheese or I'm going to kill you so then you, it's a mitzvah to eat the bacon and cheese you're not, alla- not allowed to allow yourself to be killed it means someone says you know, I'm more religious I'm going to be from doctor told me not to fast this from Kippur I'm not going to listen to my doctor and as a rabbi by the way I get this all the time People call me up and say, Rabbi, my doctor said I can't fast. <coughs> you know, I'm diabetic and this, but I've never broken my fast. I'm 75 years old, never broken. Uh, right, but that's ludicrous. That's what I tell the people. That you have a mitzvah to break your fast. So the doctor tells you you have to do it, you need to do it. it becomes, it's prohibited for you to fast. It's not just, it's an allowance, it's a permission. It's prohibited because now you have a mitzvah to, 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 to break your fast. You have to stay healthy. Okay, so the three exceptions, again, are if someone puts a gun to you and says, murder this person or I'll kill you, kill this person or I'll kill you. So in that case, you have to allow yourself to be killed before killing someone else. Okay? You can't m- commit an act of murder to save your own life. That's, that's exception number one. Okay? And, and it's really based not even on a verse, it's based more on logic. Um, because the Talmud says, who are you to decide whose life is more important? We, as Jews, you can't judge anyone just because I'm a rabbi and he's uh, an accountant. Uh, who's more important? Calendar rabbi. I, I can't make that judgment. No one can make that judgment. Whereas rabbis are no more important when it comes to saving lives than, than anyone else. Or, or for that matter, anyone. If someone's a drug dealer, uh, no one becomes just accounts. Someone, you know, you have a choice. You, um, I can, listen, I can kill the drug dealer or save my own life. I'm still not allowed to do it. Uh, we can't judge whose life is more important. We have no right to do that. Um, whose blood is red, says the Talmud. And therefore, you can't do that. If you're going to shoot that guy because you're basically what you're saying is my life is more important mm-hmm. than his. And we can't do that. We have no right to judge. Um, there are, yeah. Was one of the parshas like the last couple of weeks about something similar to that with not judging the numbers or somebody in the community taking somebody out? You know what I'm talking about? 
Um, normally, I mean, normally, majority rules, let's say, there are cases, by the way, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. Um, there is a case discusses, let's say, say, numerous lines, which we'll talk about, meaning, let's say, someone comes and threatens a whole group, and they say, so you, even that case, by the way, my mom says, even in that situation, so you have a group of, of pirates, you know, come onto the ship, and they say, listen, we're going to kill everyone on the ship, and, uh, even you know, one person out of right, the community. Right. That's the it's, not, it's not in the Torah. But that was recently the portion. It was one of the It's not in the Torah. Yeah. It's a Maimonides. Something was recently about that. Could be you heard a clip from me or a class. Nah, it's, not in, it's not in the Torah. <laughs> it's not in the Torah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's in the Talmud. Okay. Let's discuss it. So in that case, that is a very important case. Meaning, even to save multiple lives, you can't choose one life over the other. It means, let's say a group of uh, driving and finding and uh, and a group of pirates come, and and uh, you know a group of you know, pirates, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them today, thugs, and uh, and they say, listen, we're going to kill everyone on this on this in the car unless you give us one person. So the halacha is, my man, says you're not allowed to give up even even to save everyone's life. You can't give up one person because again, you're choosing. You're saying that his life is less important than ours, and who you can't make that choice. You can't make that judgment call. So even to save multiple lives. Now, if the Maimonides does say, if the person is guilty of a capital crime, and they single him out, and they say, we want this person, or, and if you give us this person, we won't kill anyone else, then you're allowed. So, so there's they two name, requirements. Yeah, if they name him, so then you're not making that choice. They're saying, listen, we're gonna, we won't kill any, we'll kill everyone, unless you give us guy X. So that's different, they're making the choice, not you. So in that case, according to some, he still has to be guilty of a capital crime also not sufficient just if they choose him. That's an argument. There's two opinions about that. But in any case, that's so, so that's just to show you how serious murder is. So that's scenario number one. Um, by the way, and the same applies to rape. That means if they come upon a group of women, says Maimonides, and they say, give us one woman to rape, and we won't touch the other woman, you know how to, give, you know how to do that. What, rape is tantamount to murder in the Torah, <coughs> and therefore you can't say, okay, we'll give you this woman, and we'll, that's relevant to what we're talking about in a second, we'll see. And then we will leave the other ones alone again because you can't make that choice. Um, so you know how to do that, even to save everyone in the group. So the second case, the second exception, like we're saying, is, is idolatry. That means if someone puts a gun to you and says, "Bow down to to Jesus Christ to the statue," you know how to do that. You have to let yourself be killed before bowing to a, a, a pagan god. Okay, so that's uh, item number two. Item number three is, for our sake, we'll talk about adultery. Uh, but any, like I said, any of the list of of uh, sexual prohibitions that are capital. Okay, so the, one of the main ones, as we know, is adultery. So adultery is again, if someone puts a gun to you and says, "Sleep with this married woman," you need to give up your life before sleeping with. Her. Okay, that's very important to know. That's, so a, high, that's a high bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a comment. Just, a, just an observation. Okay, so you have to give up your life. For that. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices. <laughs> for the sake of the country. Right. Um, so, the, so, so again, so, so now, question, so that's the exception. You're saying those three cases, you can't give up your life. I'm sorry. You can't violate the law. You have to give up your life. You're obligated. In, in Hebrew, the term is Yaharog Val Yavor. Be killed and don't violate the law. So normally, in all 610, the law is Yavor, violate the law. The Al Yaharog, don't be killed. Don't let yourself be killed in order not to violate the law. But for these three, 
the, uh, there are the exceptions and the halacha is law is yaharog valyavod let yourself be killed and don't have violate the law okay these are the three exceptions um, so adultery is pretty much that's pretty serious as you see the question is what happens again getting back to Cheryl Bento Cindy Bento <coughs> where she's doing it what about to save the country so we're saying of course in a normal situation you have to give up your life so it wouldn't be applicable the, the aspect of saving someone even to say seems like even to save your own life you couldn't she would have to let herself be killed but the question is here she's saving quote unquote let's say the country the whole Israel by supposedly which by the way I'm not sure in this case of Anunu the Mossad of course says she's helping the country he had already given his pictures over sold the pictures the pictures were already published at the time they kidnapped him 60 pictures so I'm not sure what other secrets they claim he could have had that were affecting the security of the country I'm not sure I trust the Mossad a good organization but I'm not sure the fact that they're saying he would save the country I'm not sure I believe the Mossad completely so that's a different question really at that point but assuming let's say we do we, we take the Mossad at their word which is that he he was affecting the security of the country and he literally was saving the country so the question is again would we allow Mrs. Bentov to do that that was the most liberal I've ever heard you I think what? That, your position what, not trust the Mossad? No, just that, I mean, to me, the guy is so guilty, and what he's done is so terrible. True, why but would the you question is. like him to be any better. It's only going to get worse. He could leak. He yeah, but the question is really what he knew. He was a technician. I'm not No, but he could be interviewed. He could get. I mean, You're right. No, so there's no question. Listen, he could, I'm sure there was, but at that point, I mean, listen, giving out the pictures of the installation, that's pretty serious. He's already done that. What more could he offer? I mean, he was some lowly technician. It wasn't like he was a scientist involved in the, you know, he basically was working, I don't know, not sure exactly what he did, but he was a technician. He wasn't like a major guy in the, the, what do you think? I'm just paralleling this to Edward Snowden. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about him too. And what Snowden did, and if he were to come back here, he'd like to testify to Congress to tell what was going on with the NSA. Snowden would be buried forever. I mean, yeah, again, so again, the fact that an intelligence agency, my issue is not, listen, he, I think Vanunu was evil for yeah. what he did. That's not the issue. The issue is, was he at this point where he already sold, he gave his, he, whatever he could do, the damage <coughs> he done, you could argue he already did. Listen, of course we should put him on trial, but the question is... She already did her, she already did her... No, well. no, but my question is, well, should, if she would have came to me and asked me the question, <laughs> would he have allowed her to go to London? That's the question. Of course, listen, she's did it. Yeah, she violated. I mean, at that point, she really did what she did. The question is, again, if an agent would come to me as their rabbi, and I, I, don't, know, I don't know if she had a rabbi, she, I'm saying, and ask me, can I go on this mission and sleep with, sleep with the enemy? That's the question. Would I allow her to do it? That's really the issue. And what I'm saying is, without knowing the facts of Anuna, we really don't know what he was privy to and what he knew. But I, I'm just saying, just because Mossad's saying we had to do this to save the country doesn't mean halakhically I believe them. You mean you have to know the facts. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with the situation, meaning, you know, we're going to discuss, are you allowed to sl- commit adultery to save the country? That's really the question. What I'm saying is, the saving the country has to be ascertained also. Right. We don't know if in this case she really was. If he had already sold his pictures, to the London Times, and they published them already, so what more Yeah, I mean, as, as you've laid out the facts here, no one's life was in danger. Well, the Mossad would defer. Well, okay, but... Back to defer. <coughs> I, I don't know. As, as you laid the facts out, yeah. it's hard to see how the country was in danger 
you know, this is very tantamount to the discussion going on now of NSA and passing of the law and not passing the law. Lots of people want the law passed. There's a counter argument which is which rages, which is there's no evidence that it's been of any impact. I'm not taking a side. I'm saying those are the arguments. No one's going to have the right knowledge, right? Without a rabbi or David, no one's going to get the inside knowledge to make an informed decision, right? And if, as you laid this out, I can't imagine the time said, here's the money, come back in four days with with the photos. If he got the money, which again is what you say here, they got the pictures. Yeah, they had the pictures. They published them. They were published, as far as I remember. So, getting him back, yeah, the, the other argument, lives. so two things. One is, I'm not sure you're right, meaning in Israel, the, I would hope there is some concept of morality and, and Mossad, I'm not saying they ask yeah. a lot of questions <laughs> in every situation, but you know, there, there is consultation, meaning is this moral, is this the right thing to do? I'm not saying she herself, but I, I don't think she's religious, I, I don't know. Um, but meaning the question again would be, you, you'd have to ascertain those facts. I mean, Mossad, the rabbi can call uh, call Mossad, call you know three one one. So, so I think there's a there's a there's, there's a further argument sure, as, yeah. as to why Mossad would argue it was a necessity, which is this is this, right. This is not going to save a life, but this will tell anyone any future spy, we will get you. It may take us fifteen minutes, fifteen days, or fifteen years. Right. That's that's another question. Right, for, for prevent, so that's interesting because I don't know that halakhically that would be sufficient. No, I, I'm not no, saying meaning, it would be. I'm just saying to that's, prevent the future that's the best argument I can make is right. spies jeopardize the existence of the state of Israel. They risk lives. We don't know the specific damage they might cause, but it's clear they will cause damage. We're sending a message to all future spies. We'll get you, we'll hunt you. Uh, no matter what it takes, even if you have to sleep with one of our folks. <laughs> and my, point, my point is, you're never going to really ever have that comfort level, especially as her advisor, knowing that there's always gray area, right? It may just be as that their point was exactly what David said that it's a to send a message. But you're saying, oh, I need clear cut case, and this guy's going to. You don't know that. Well, I don't think business. I don't think my argument is sufficient. Under the law you're setting out, I don't think my argument is sufficient for future to set set an example because then everything sets an example. But that's the only. Oh, argument maybe that I is. Make. The question but is: Do you declare present make. danger, or is it enough for future? Yeah. We didn't we didn't say it. What? So so the two precedents I found. So we always have to work with precedent. That's an ambiguous danger. Well, of future, right? So that's the. Then everything is. Right. That's really the debate happening in America today. We're going to torture you, even though we don't think you have anything, because that way everybody will know we're going to torture. Yeah. Right. So that's a good point. So the the two precedents I found in Jewish law is two. One is more famous than the other. One is Esther, in the story of Purim, of course. Esther ends up sleeping with Achashverosh to in order to save the country, the Jewish people, so to speak. Right. The case is. Um, initially, yeah, I forgot to put it down here, but um, it's actually based on a verse that Talmud says. Initially, Esther, um, it was a beauty contest. That was really against her will. She didn't have a choice to join the beauty I think everyone in the land had to join the beauty contest. She was chosen, um, and of course she ended up becoming the queen. At a later point, there's a point in the Megillah, which I forgot to put down on the sheet here. So there's a verse that says, 
she when Haman Haman makes the later point and uh, Haman um, says he's going to kill the whole Jewish people. So she needs to go into the king. And the verse is let me see if I can find it quickly. I got to put it down. The verse in the Megillah says like this. It says she says. Um, she tells Esther, she tells Mordechai, by the way, she was, the, this is all according to one opinion, according to one matter, she was married to Mordechai. Esther was Mordechai's niece, mm. and they were married. So she was a married woman, okay. and now became the queen. Which that itself is against her will, so technically uh, um, that's not adultery. Meaning if a woman is taken against her will, she has a relationship against her will, of course that's rape, and she's of course she can go back to her husband, that's not considered adultery. Um, has to be willing. Willingly. But at one point in the Megillah, so it says like this, it says, let's see how good my Megillah skills are. Remember where it is. So she says she's going to go into Ahasuerus. She's going to go into the king. Even, you know, of course, there's a protocol to get into the king. You have to have permission, you have an appointment, mm-hmm. and you don't want to surprise Bill Clinton in the Oval Office. Right. So, so she had to... Um, so it says, she tells Mordechai, I'm going to go in, lo kedas, against the law, meaning there's barjan tachash And then she says, um, find it. if I get imavadim, if I get lost, I'm lost. Okay. Here somewhere. Maybe I forgot to put it down on the page. Oh, here it is. It says like this. Um, she says, Lech, she tells Mordechai, yes, she tells Mordechai, Lech, can us call you, go gather all the Jewish na- people, and they should fast for three days, um, and do- no eating, no drinking for three days, and Gamani and I will fast, she tells Mordechai, Vinarosai, Atsum came, I will also fast. The Khin Avola Malach will come to the king, Ashalokadas against unlawfully, Kasharavadhi Avadhi. And if I will be lost, I'll perish, I'll perish. So the simple interpretation is she's saying, I'm going against the, the protocol and he might I might get killed, just as Vashti, his first wife killed. He might kill me too, just because I'm the queen doesn't mean I'm be saved. The Talmud says no, she was saying a much deeper thing. She was saying I'm going against the laws because now I'm going willfully to the king. Now it's going to be adultery. So unlawfully doesn't mean against the law of the land. It means against the law of the Torah. So now I'm committing adultery willfully. So I'm going to go in. Right? What's the way to the king's heart? She's going to have a relationship with him. Willfully. And then, if I'm lost, if I perish, I perish. Meaning, not I'm perishing physically, but we are no longer going to be able to remain married. Because up until now, even though she was the queen, one point she knew she'll, she, as a matter of fact, according to one opinion, Talmud, she would switch off nights. Um, she would go one night with Hachashverosh, one night with back to Mordechai. Okay, so uh, so so the so therefore she's saying now. But once I'm going in willfully to the king, that's it. Our relationship is over because uh, now it's going to be willfully willful adultery, and I'm no longer going to be able to remain married. To you. That's how the Talmud interprets this verse. So the the point being is, and I'm going to run out of time, so I need to speed it up. The Talmud asked the question, so how was she allowed to do this? She would have to give up her life. We're saying, to not to, in order not to commit adultery, you have to sacrifice your life. What allowed her to do this? So the Talmud gives two answers. One is a um, fascinating thing. One is 
as we'll see, it's to save, she did a mitzvah to save the whole Jewish nation. So it seems like to save the Jewish nation would be permitted, and we're going to discuss that. The other thing that Talmud says, and another fascinating thing, um, which is, this is all a leniency for women, um, because we're not going to get too graphic here, because it's lunchtime, um, this is a family session, but, uh, but the, the, the Talmud says like this, let's, let's forget adultery for a second, let's view murder. Talmud says, let's say, if someone puts a gun to you and says, kill this person or I'm going to kill you, you can't do that act because you're committing an act of murder. But let's say they don't say that. Let's say they pick you up and they're going to use you as a weapon. They're going to smother a baby with your body. Do I have to sacrifice my life in order not to be used as a weapon? Says Tosvos, no. Because in there, you're not doing an act of murder. You're passively, you're just passively sitting there. You're a rag doll and they're using your body to smother a baby. So even though they're, they're committing murder with you, but you don't have to give up your life for that. It's a fine line because, again, it's, it's choosing the life. It's committing an act of murder. To shoot someone, to save my life, I can't do that. Of course, self-defense is different, obviously, but, but we're talking about just to shoot an innocent person to save your own life, that's committing an act of murder. But if you're passive in your act of murder, meaning you're, you're, they're only going to use your body, that's permitted. So says Tosafo in one of the commentaries in the Talmud, it's the same thing with, the, with adultery, with the sexual act. If the woman is just totally just laying there passively and not doing anything, um, not, not doing anything, she's just, as, as the mm-hmm. Talmud says, Esther, you know, the, the words the Talmud uses, karka olamos. She lay there like a clot of dirt. So she didn't do anything. So she was just passive. So in that case, says the Talmud, she's not obligated to give up her life. That's not a case. That's a leniency. She didn't have an obligation to give up her life. So, is that, uh, so it only works for a woman because a male... It's the Talmud says this leniency doesn't work because a male always has to be active in the mm-hmm. sense of they have to want it in order for it to happen. Mm-hmm. The so male doesn't the want it to happen. Smoking, so then smoking but not inhaling. So the yeah, by the way, that is true. I didn't say that either, but uh, um, meaning it's only the act of literally sexual intercourse that's considered adultery in Jewish law. Meaning if you do Clintonian Acts, um, anything up until the act of literal literal intercourse, there's no, I don't know, I think there's no prohibition, but it's not adultery. Okay, well, everything else. Came out of this lunch, then that was it, right? <laughs> okay, that's not considered adultery anyway. But that's a sidebar. This is a sidebar. Is that how you would advise your daughters? <laughs> I'm just saying the. the <laughs> is that how you're a rabbi? Is that how you would advise your daughters? Make sure to delete that. I was curious when it comes to someone's personal practices. As opposed yeah, yeah, we don't to get personal their, here. Their, we don't get their personal in yeah. this class. So, so the bottom line is the So what we're saying is the Talmud says uh, the Tosa says that so therefore the permission of Esther was the fact that she just lay there as a cloud of earth. So therefore the, she didn't have to sacrifice her life. Okay, but the question still remains is what, according to the back pages, is this still permitted? She doesn't have to sacrifice her life. That doesn't mean that it's not adultery. There's two different issues. One is there's an obligation to give up your life in order not to commit adultery. So we're saying that Esther didn't have that obligation because she just lay there as a cloud of earth. But it's still, at the end of the day, she, had related, she violated her marriage. She still had relations after. So what is the law? So I found three opinions discussing this. So opinion number one on the back here is A. Marik writes, it is abundantly clear that Esther did not violate any prohibition and there was not even a trace of aver, of sin. Rather, she did a great mitzvah to save all of Israel. What she did was a mitzvah. 
surely this is so for when she came before the king Ruach HaKodesh descended upon her it means a divine spirit it was quite obviously an extremely great mitzvah likewise we find that Yael was the other um, precedent who was a woman who was also married according to Moshe of Jewish she seduced the I, I think it was a Roman general um, she brought her into in, she brought him into her tent she gave him a lot of cheese this is related to the story of Hanukkah actually um, then she got him drunk and then she, she decapitated him um, and brought his head out and all his troops, all the Roman troops, the Roman legions ran away when they saw the head of the general on the, on the stick. So that was another, another precedent where you find the woman committing adultery in order to save the nation. That's, so, a, that's a strong view from there. Yes. So likewise you find that Yael, the wife of Hever Akini, was lauded regarding the incident with Sisra. Sisra was the general. I believe he's Roman, he might be Greek. Greek, I'm not such a historian, I don't remember the history. It's either Roman or Greek, one of those. Cicero sounds more Greek than Roman. So that's opinion number A. Opinion B is the Shvus Yaakov. He, he says he had actually had a case that came before him of a woman. He lived in the, I think, late, early 1700s. So it was a case where, a case again, someone was traveling uh, far in the southwest, a band of pirates surrounded the group, um, and and basically was going to kill everyone. This woman on her own willingly went out of the group and she offered herself to the pirates. Um, she was married, her husband was amongst the people she was saving, amongst the group, and she offered herself to the pirates and they let everyone go and, and were happy with that woman. And they, had, they had relations with her, they didn't kill her. So she willingly went, so then she, afterwards they came to the rabbi saying, could she, can they remain married after she willingly went and offered herself to the pirates. So the rabbi answered, so if you look at B, he said in that case, um, she threw herself before them with the consent of her husband and thus saved the group. Now her husband has come to ask whether she's permitted to him. The act was done willingly but at the threat of death. Is this tantamount to rape or must her husband, and, and then she permitted to her husband, or must her husband separate from her? So the answer was, even though she acted correctly, he said, she is prohibited to her husband, even though there's no trace of sin. So even though he's saying technically, or I don't want to use the word technically, but she was permitted to do what she did. She should have, he's saying, it was a good thing she did. But they still can't remain married afterwards. That's what he ruled. Even though there's no trace of sin, and she acted in order to save the group, she's prohibited to her husband, as were Yael and Esther. So he's saying, just as the Talmud says, ya Esther stated when she knew when she was going to the king, she, was, she, was, she technically was okay, but she wouldn't be able to remain any longer, remain with Mordechai. So he says the same, you see from there that the same case here. She did the right thing, um, but she still she can't remain, she can't go back to her husband. And the third opinion is the Nodu Biudo, who was the chief rabbi of Prague, um, 17, uh, late 1600s, I believe, or mid 1600s. So he's, he doesn't like this last opinion. He says, because the last opinion is basically saying, and the key words here are, he said, even this, we're just saving a few lives. We're not saving the whole country. If you look at the first mm -hmm. opinion, it says specifically, and I, I, I bolded it there, in opinion number A, it says, saved all of Israel. The permission of Esther was that the fact that she was saving the whole Jewish nation. In opinion B, um, he's saying the fact that she just saved a few people, including her husband, that's sufficient to, get up to, to commit adultery. Opinion C says, no, this ruling that is permissible for a mad woman to willingly commit adultery in order to save lives is incorrect. I disagree with what is written in one response, and he brought proof from Esther. I claim that since the rabbis taught that one may violate any prohibition in order to heal, aside from adultery, adultery, and murder, just as we may not heal through these prohibitions, that means, let's say the doctor says, the only way you're going to be healed from your cancer is if you have an affair with this woman. Okay, that has happened. 
Okay, so you, right, the doctor says the only way you'd be healed from illness is if you sleep with this woman. There are cases like that the Talmud discussed where you have a lovesick person, the person the doctor says is going to die unless he's able to sleep with this woman. And the Talmud says he's prohibited. That woman's married. We don't allow him to sleep with that woman even if it's going to save his life. Okay, so because again, adultery, you have to sacrifice your life. So says he, so, so just as we may not heal through these prohibitions, so too we may not save lives through them. So, so the case, the, the case in B, where this woman willingly went to save this group of, of, of this caravan's life, he says that's prohibited, wouldn't be allowed. Esther was different, he says, because she was saving the entire Jewish people from Hodu and Tokush. As the Megillah says, Achashverosh ruled over basically all of civilized, the civilized world at the time, 127 countries. The Persian Empire at the time, this is historically true also, it's not just from the Megillah, ruled over the whole civilized world at the time, 127 nations. Um, at the time. So, the, so every Jewish person was living amongst those 127 nations. So it was to save the whole, literally the whole Jewish people. It would have been genocide. In that case, he said that was her permission. We cannot extrapolate from the entire Jewish people to individuals. Furthermore, Esther had the consent of Mordechai and his court. As we know, Mordechai was actually a member of the Sanhedrin um, in the first temple. He was exiled after the construction of the first, after the, de- the destruction of the first temple. He was exiled to Persia. Um, so he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He gave her permission. And possibly through Ruach HaKodesh, Divine Spirit, she was herself, Esther was a prophetess. So he says, you can't bring a proof from Esther to other cases, especially when you're not saving the whole Jewish people. Just to, because we're out of time, getting back to Vanunu and Cindy or uh, Cheryl Bento. So the issue would be, again, assuming we believe the Mossad, that she was saving the whole Jewish people, she, she was saving the country. The question is, do we view Israel as the whole Jewish people? As we know, we're, we're many Jews. Um, probably equal amount of Jews living outside of Israel. So even if she's saving the country of Israel, do we view it according to, let's say, opinion C, she's saving the whole Jewish nation? Um, so there are, I saw there are opinions who say, relevant to other uh, halachic concepts, that Israel we consider as the whole Jewish nation, even though the whole Jewish nation might not be living in the state of Israel, or in the country of Israel, do we, we still view that as the whole but, but Rabbi, Jewish people? You, yes. What I see is you're speculating but that was Mossad's position, that yeah, they were well, saving the saving the lives. You're speculating. Yeah, no, that, that itself is a speculation. According to this information, they're saying that the Mossad's claimed she's saving, uh, she, he was a security threat to the country. Yeah. A security threat is very different than saving the entire country. Yes, and, 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 and there's no statement that right. the spokesperson for Mossad Right. who I don't yes. think has a spokesperson that says, here's why we're carrying out these secret, <laughs> top secret missions, is laying that out. There's really no support that that right. was Mossad's black and agreed. white position. Agreed. So it's all speculation. 100% I agree. Meaning, uh, David's pointing a very good point. Meaning, assuming even we want to go with the lenient opinion that says, we view the whole state of Israel as a whole Jewish nation, for whatever reason, um, it's still, uh, or one can make the argument maybe even, Without Israel, maybe the Jews wouldn't be endangered in other places. But maybe it's all speculation. But he's right. I mean, even if it's a security, even if Sumi Vanunu was a security threat, which you don't even know that part, because he already sold his pictures. Um, How do we view the security threat to the country, meaning saving the whole country? How do we define it? So you're right. There's a lot of unknowns here. Um, I would not tell your family members to do this, to take that job as a married uh, woman take the job of being a Mossad agent. Um, but there is wiggle room. Um, she is currently married to her husband. She didn't ask the question. Maybe she did. I don't know. She didn't ask me. Um, 
So there is wiggle room to say what we're saying. We're trying to find a way to, to allow some wiggle room for female married Mossad agents. So you're but saying, it's not so simple. So you're saying that in the case of Cheryl, then, halakhically, it's okay that she's no, with her I husband? Didn't say that. Uh, I said, assuming there is a true yeah. valid threat yeah. that she was saving the country, and assuming right. we view Israel okay. as the whole Jewish nation, okay. then so there would be yeah. room to you say this. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Say it would be okay. That's if, 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 if. We had five ifs there, so, yeah. Just put it No, the question is if you have a clear-cut case where, let's say, you know, this woman can uh, sleep with uh, Ahmadinejad or someone in Iran, uh, the new guy, I don't know, whatever his name is, and save uh, literally that, that might be a valid case where, literally, if you can get rid of Iran's nuclear weapons yeah. by committing adultery, maybe you can make the argument that you're saving the country. You could, but you know, Rabbi, one of the issues is always what is the ultimate outcome. So you could, if you step yeah, that, back, hang on, yeah. you step back from the horrors of Nazism, if Hitler's destroyed early, uh, you save the lives of six million people. You don't have a state of Israel. Yeah, so it's so when true. you talk about, you know, I'm going to save the state of Israel, maybe, but yeah, you never you know the alternative outcomes. Yes, yeah, so here you and clear. But the argument I would make there is that, like we said before, when it comes to saving lives or even saving countries, we don't view numbers. So if there's a, even a 10% chance that, let's say, by getting rid of Iran's nuclear weapons, that would save the state of Israel, yes. so then that would, that would be permitted. That's what I would say in this case. I, I have one other. I, I don't know if other people in the class would be interested, but yesterday's New York Times has a very long story on a rabbi uh, who's famous, whose name I don't recall, he's still alive, uh, who, as part of his educational process, took young bar mitzvah age boys into the, the steam and sauna. He's a very famous mm -hmm. rabbi, how the congregation dealt with him and the whole issues and his mentoring, and he mentored many rabbis. I'd be interested if you'd like to do a class on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because... Uh -huh. Thank you.